as I said, put your finger in Hebrew in, in, in Psalm 23. We're going to read it in a second. But I just want to start off with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I was just reading through it again this week and just reminded of some of the most amazing things uh, in the Scriptures. And so I want to go over uh, how awesome Christ is uh, whenever we look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So, therefore, therefore, I'm still even going to pray. We're going to read it. Everything's going to happen. I just have to get this off my chest. So therefore, so when you see the word therefore, it means always try to figure out what that word is there for. So look up above you. Well, Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. It's where it lists out all the Old Testament saints and how by faith they trusted in God. So therefore, so based on everything you just saw and all these people in, in chapter 11, therefore, since we, now he's talking about us who are Christians, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So in essence, the writer of Hebrews, I think it's Paul, is saying that since um, we now have all these people who have gone before us and we're literally in a sense surrounded by all these greater crowd of witnesses. Now watch what it puts. It puts it into a, a little running metaphor. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, sink, uh, which clings so close and let us run with endurance. So uh, usually the way this has always kind of been at least taught in me, this is not me, this is my seminary professor pointed this out and I think it's amazing. Um, you think of like a big kind of football auditorium and you're running this race and everybody's surrounded you in the crowds and they've all gone ahead of, before you. They've all lived the Christian life. They've all died and now they're sitting in the stands and they're looking at you and they're like, yeah, go, 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 keep running the race. And so it says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, I don't think that's it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adjust the little, the little thing. But since that's kind of the picture, it tells us since we're running this race, we're running this race for Christ, there's a there's a challenge for us as we're doing. Let us also lay aside every weight. Now, that weight is, as you keep going, and sin which clings so closely. So we have sin in our life. And he's saying, as you're running this race, all these people who have gone before you have lived by faith. And as they live by faith, they've trusted in Christ. And essentially now they are fully sanctified and glorified. And so since that's happened to them, as you're running this race... Get rid of the sin in your life. Just throw it away. And then it says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Now, with endurance meaning uh, you can't just sprint. You're going to get tired. You've got a long life of sanctification, progressive sanctification, and continually kill sin. Pace yourself continually. And how are you going to do that? I mean, it sounds like as you just read verse 1, it's all up to you. Then it has these next two, three words. Looking to Jesus. That's the only way we're going to do it. Killing sin in our life is looking to Jesus. Now, here's where it gets awesome, right? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So he's the author. He is the one that gave us salvation. We would not be saved if it wasn't for him. He reached in, not because we're great, but because he is, and chose to give us the gift of faith. So he's the founder and he's the perfecter. Not only does he save, but he's going to continually sanctify, continually sanctify. And so this author is understanding sanctification, that it's a work between God and man, because he's telling you, us, to lay aside every weight. But as you look at Philippians 2, you know that, that it's because he's also working and willing within us. And he tells us to look to Jesus. The way that we kill sin is to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
And now here's where it gets awesome. So since we're surrounded by these great cloud of witnesses, it's not really the football field where everybody's looking at you running in a circle over and over. And they're like, yeah, go. Because in the very beginning of verse 2, it says looking to Jesus. So instead, think of it as a long, long, you know, cross-country thing where they're actually not in a grandstands kind of thing. But they're all on the side as you're running the race. And they're clapping for you this way. But they're not looking at you. It flips it so that... In, in the football situation, it's all about us. We're running the race and everybody's looking to us. That's not what it's like. But instead, it's a cross-country thing. And they're standing on the side. Instead of pointing at you like you're awesome, they're all going, look at the finish line. There's Jesus. There he is. And so they're cheering us on in a sense. But it flips it to where it's not man-centered. And they're cheering for us running. running. It's all God-centered. And they're just pointing towards the end line. And they're saying, look Look to Jesus. Run that way. Keep going. You can keep going. And so as you're running this race, he's going to tell us something about Jesus. Why is it that we would want to look at Jesus? Look what he did. I mean, this is unbelievable. Look what he did. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So he saved us. Now listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? Just from a human perspective, if I know that I'm going to the cross... The last thing that's going to be in my mind is joy. Scared, fear, petrified, not looking forward to it, not want it to happen. How can a man, because he was a man, how can a man look to death with joy? Because he knew that he was going to save us. He knew what was going to happen. Victory over Satan, sin, and death. And then this massive ingathering of all of his daughters and sons to be a part of his family. That's how he looks to it. The cross with joy. Because he knew what was going to happen. He knew that if you're in Christ. You right now were going to be saved. And that you were going to be running that race. That's how he could do it with joy. So Jesus endured the cross with joy. For the sake of your soul. Isn't that unbelievable? I mean. Wait, uh, Jesus endured the cross with joy. For the sake of your soul. Doesn't that just make you want to stand up and scream and say amen? Oh, hopefully it does. All right. So he says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It was a massively shameful, terrible thing, but he endured it. And now, because of all that, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God in glory forever, our king. Isn't that just amazing news? That's our Christ. Now, when we're going to be looking at Psalm 23, all of that should be in the, in the background of your mind as our great shepherd. So, if you will, stand with me. We're going to read Psalm 23 together. I'll read it out loud, and I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God. Psalm chapter 23, a psalm of David. Remember the superscription, Joe. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me, me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the fact that you endured the cross for, for us so that we can know you. And Lord, I, uh, I ask for a special mercy this morning as we look into your text, uh, that you would be kind and gracious to us, that we would see you as our great shepherd and host, and that we would want to give you all the glory for it, and that we would find ourselves in awe in just how much you care about us. Um, Holy Spirit, come now and fill this room and fill this place. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a psalm of David. Um, Calvin guesses that likely this is a time during a time of prosperity for David. Uh, so what is it then about this psalm? It's a very, very famous psalm for us. What is it about the psalm that has over the thousands of years that we've that, it's, that Christians have been able to read it, that followers of the Lord have been able to read it. What is it that's always continually provided comfort and strength to, to believers? Why is it that it's reverted back to in, in a lot of situations where it gives hope and encouragement to generations and generations of God's people? What is it about this psalm that as they've walked through difficult times, it is the one that's become kind of the famous one that people go to? Uh, you may not be in a difficult time in your life right now, but just put on your seatbelt because likely you will because we're all going to go through difficult times. Uh, it could be awesome right now. As I said, this is maybe written in a, in a time of David's prosperity, but he certainly faced difficult times. But this particular psalm, even if difficulties are around the corner, should give us uh, some things that we can know about Jesus, know about our Lord to give us strength and confidence and encouragement and comfort during difficult times. And so... Uh, the way that it's written is written in kind of two, uh, two sections. Um, in verse, verses 1 through 4, it's going to tell us about God as our shepherd. And then in verses 5 and 6, it's going to tell us about God as our host. And so I'm just going to go through all the text and let you see there's five things about him as our shepherd and three things about the host and let you just see all eight amazing truths about, about the Lord and what he's done for us and what he is for us. So... First thing, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. So first we're looking at God as shepherd. You can go ahead and put up point A, Roman numeral 1, point A. Your shepherd's care is intimate. Notice when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. There's at least 17 different times where the first person pl- pronoun is used here. My, 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 me, my. And so what the... What David is wanting us to see here, not only is it that he's David's shepherd, but the Lord is your shepherd. He's not just a shepherd, he's the shepherd. And truly, since we're a church family, he's not just my shepherd, he's our shepherd. But he's wanting you to see that the Lord's care for you is intimate. This my is put there so that you can know that he is your shepherd. He's for you, he's with you, he's always there for you, he knows you. So just feel this, feel Feel the weight and wonder that you actually have the ability as a child of God to say the Lord is my shepherd. And know that since he's your shepherd, his care for you is intimate. It's deeply involved. In the midst of all of your pain or coming pain or past pain of anything that's been going on in your life, in your family's life, or, or work stuff or whatever's going on, 
the Lord's care for you is always intimate. He's caring for you and taking care of you in spiritual ways sometimes you don't even recognize. Not until five or ten years later sometimes will you look back and see, wow, he was intimately involved in caring for me in that, and I didn't even recognize it. I was in so much pain. So uh, the, the illustration I use is if you have children, uh, especially when they're young, and you care for them in a thousand different ways, many times they have absolutely no clue how much you're caring for them, how much you're doing for them. Uh, whenever you get home and it's late at night and they're totally asleep and you have to do your best to unbuckle them from the thing because you need for them to stay asleep and you are gently taking this up and then you finally, like for 10 minutes, you break your back to get them into your shoulder and then you walk up the stairs and you can barely breathe by the time you get up there because you don't exercise and you're totally winded and you lay them down, you lay them down into their bed. Like they don't understand how much you just endured for that, right? It's a funny little joke, but my point is, uh, in a billion different ways, the Lord is caring for you like that, far more intimately than you can ever imagine. And sometimes you won't recognize it even in this lifetime. Your Father's care for you is intimate, much like the care we give for young children. This is how God is caring for us. Um, Some of us will see it and we'll recognize it and we'll praise the Lord for it, and sometimes we won't see it at all until in glory. But it's unbelievably intimate. The Lord is my shepherd. And then it says right after that, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Consider that phrase. I don't need anything. Since he's my shepherd, I don't need anything because he gives me what I need. Point number two is your shepherd's care is totally sufficient. It's totally sufficient. The literal phrase is, I shall not lack. David is writing just how abundantly God provides for all of his necessities. How can you know, how can you know this? So we're looking at an epistemological question. How can you know that God is totally sufficient in his care for you? How can you know that? If How can you know that he's going to take care of every single tiny little need in all of your life? I think good evidence is if the Lord has taken care of your absolute greatest need that you would ever need, then the smaller things, certainly why would he not do that? Romans, I think Romans 8.32 is why. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave the son for your sin, he took care of the biggest thing, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all the necessities of life? So your, sh- your shepherd's care is totally sufficient. If God gave us his own son for the salvation of our souls, then he will graciously give you everything as you need as your shepherd to be comforted. So I'm reminded of, this is off the cuff, Matthew 6 or 7, Sermon on the Mount. Consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the fields. If he, doesn't take, if he takes care of birds and he takes care of, uh, of flowers, he's going to take care of you. If he's going to take care of a bird and a flower, how much more important are you than they? So he's going to take care of you. It's totally sufficient. It's all that you need. 
Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. He daily bears us up. God is our salvation. You need to remember that. Psalm 68, 19. He daily bears you up. Some of you need to hear in the difficult days that the Lord's going to daily bear you up. Some of you, you could be struggling with marriage stuff or just scared of your next steps with your job or your child's making you scared with the direction they're going. Maybe you have a teenager. The Lord's going to daily bear you up. Daily. He is sufficient to care for you because he's your shepherd who loves you and he will daily bear you up. His care for you is totally sufficient. Don't ever believe that God's care for you isn't totally sufficient and that he's lacking in any way in caring for you. So, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. I want you to notice uh, in this in this. Um, shepherd caring for you it's all him he makes me he leads me he leads me so in this care for your soul just notice how much he's doing he's the one that's making you he's the one that's leading you and where's he doing he's leading you uh, he's making you lie down in green pastures he's not making you lie down in trash heaps right he's leading you beside still waters he's leading you into Paths of righteousness. So, your shepherd's provision, number three, see, your shepherd's provision is based completely on his grace and not your ability. He's making, he's leading, he's doing it, which is great news. And the reason why he's doing it is not because you're bringing him to do it, it's all on grace. And notice where he's leading you into green pastures into still waters where there's peaceful places of rest, into places of righteousness, places where you're going to be made righteous. So these places that he's taken you are not places where you're going to deteriorate spiritually. They're places where you're going to flourish and thrive and grow spiritually. And he is the impetus. He is the catalyst. He is the one doing it. And so it's all based on his grace. He does not have to do that at all. But what is he doing? He's overflowing with grace to us. It's all by grace. The Lord on high, Jesus Christ, has taken responsibility for you individually for refreshing your soul and leading you into green pastures and still waters and paths of righteousness. This is just absolutely astounding because no one else could do it. Who else would you want to do that besides him? And no one can do it any better than him ever. And so... Tucked away in there, it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. In between that, the, the two leads, he says, He restores my soul. So as he's doing all that, Calvin translates this, the, the conversion of the soul. So one could make the case for the unbeliever, this is where he actually leads them into salvation. Where he, completely based on his grace, leads them into salvation. Um, if it's not that, if it is for believers, it's whenever we've been beat down in our walk with Christ, he's continually, as he's saying, restoring our soul, recovering, make, making new. Uh, and so 
again, all of that is not anywhere based on our ability, but all based on the grace of God. So our shepherd's provision for us is always based on his grace. Everything the Lord provides to you is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, which should always yield for us a heart of gratitude. Anything that's grace upon grace upon grace to us, we should not get used to it or we're like, yeah, I'm used to that now. <laughs> big deal. It should always be a big deal. Gratitude, overflowing, amazing gratitude in our hearts should be our response. That's hard. I know. It's hard. We're sinful and we can get used to having things given to us and then it becomes like something we're used to and we stop having gratitude, which is why we should constantly try to cultivate within our hearts a heart of gratitude as grace upon grace is being overflowed upon us. But the truth is, all of his provision is not based on our ability. We're never going to get our act together good enough where he's like, oh, I really owe you this. It's all based on his grace. And his grace is leading us into green pastures, still waters, passive righteousness. Places of flourishing spiritually, not deterioration. Now, why does he do it? Watch this. He leads us into the passive righteousness, and then it says this little place, for his name's sake. For his name's sake. And this is really why the Lord does all he does. Ultimately, ultimately, God is always doing everything for his own glory. That's, how, that's why, how he remains God. If he does it for anybody else's glory, that person of which he does it for should be God. And so all things have to be done for his glory because he is God. For him to remain God, he can't ever not be God. So number four is your shepherd's care is for his glory. All things he does are for his namesake and for his glory. That means all things that we should do should be for his glory. Everything that we want to do should be for his glory. You can see this um, even in the next verse in the life that we, uh, where we walk through the valley of shadow of death. He also does that for his glory. For his namesake applies to the next verse, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So when we walk through difficult pain in our life, it doesn't negate the end of verse 3. It's still for his glory. All things that happen in our life are still for his glory. That's difficult. I get it. I understand. Walking through tough times for the glory of God is not easy. But it's still all things are to be done for his glory. One, one illustration uh, would be the book of Job. So in the book of Job, um, by the way, Job was a, uh, likely a contemporary of Abraham. So really early, really, really early. Um, the very end of chapter 1, if you're not unfamiliar, the devil comes up. It's, I don't know how it works. I've always wondered how the devil comes up and starts asking God in heaven. Like, it's not supposed to be in the presence of God. How's he there asking? I don't know. That's, that's something that's always like, what? Anyway, so he comes up and he's like, hey, God's like, have you considered Job? And he's like, oh, you got this hedge of protect around him. Like, he's, he's never going to do anything. He, he, he's too good for him. He's like, all right, well, you just can't kill him. So it, basically, in the end, uh, everything's taken away from Job. Uh, everything's taken away from him. And if you look at verse 20 in chapter 1, uh, this is what it says. Job arose, arose after all kind of things are taken away. His children, his wealth, he's just not dead. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and called it quits. No, 
and worshiped. And he said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, I had a time of prosperity, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He understood this principle, that the shepherd's care for us is always for his glory. And so, in times of prosperity, or if we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can you do that? The Holy Spirit inside of you. The hope of the gospel. The Lord God empowers us to be able to do that. You you should not try to conjure that up within you. The Lord gives us strength to be able to do that. We can trust him because he's always good. And he's God. Romans 8, 28. And we know this. That those for love who God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a true thing. The Lord brings about all things for good. Sometimes that's not even seen in our lifetime. Sometimes it is. But we have to believe that it's true because it's the Lord doing it. So he does all things for his namesake. And then it says this, even though I walk Through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Now, I want you to notice something here. I'll go ahead and tell you the next thing in verse 4 is this. Your shepherd's care leaves you with nothing to fear. You can go ahead and put it up, point 5E. Your shepherd's care leaves you with nothing to fear because... He is with you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So I'm walking through difficult times. I'm not going to fear anything. Why am I not going to fear? For you are with me. Because you're with me. When I go through difficult times, the reason why it's not as fearful as it can be is because God is with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. So we will not fear anything, even death itself. Because of the Lord. When we find ourselves in deep darkness, in the valley of the shadow of death, when we walk through difficult times, whether those things are things you've done yourself or you slung the hammer yourself and you, you caused all the wreckage in your life yourself. Either way, if you're in Christ, the Lord is with you. When we walk through these difficult times, instead of talking about God, it makes more sense to talk to God. If you notice that. And so you should notice that there's a shift here right there in the middle of the sentence where all of a sudden he switches from third person to second person. He's talking about God the entire time. Notice it. The Lord is my shepherd. He does this. He does this. He does this. Even though I walk through the valley of shove, I'm feeling four. He's not saying he anymore. You are with me. There's this major shift in the Hebrew from third person to second person. Instead of saying he, 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 now he's saying, you are with me. Your rod, they come for me. You prepare. You. It's a pretty amazing little shift there, but where it is is key. As we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, instead of talking about God anymore, he knows that he's got to start talking to God. And so instead of he, 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 now it's you, you, you the rest of the way. Where David does this is not in the intimate, refreshing green pastures and still waters, but now in the dark valley of the shadow of death. The trouble of the valley 
is the thing that drives him closer to the shepherd and brings him into deeper intimacy with God. Which means, this can be true for you. In the more difficult circumstances of life, it should push you into Jesus. 2 Corinthians, if you remember when we went through it, right? The Holy Spirit is our comforter. Chapter 1. And so, difficult circumstances should drive us to the comforter, not away. Now, I want to make sure you understand why. Here, here's why. It's not that he's closer in the valley. It's not that he's actually closer in the valley of life. It's just that we more often notice that he's always close when we're in the valley. He's the same close all the time. It's not that he's closer in the valley. It's just more often that we notice that he's always close when we're in the valley. Whenever you're hit the bottom, I mean, what's almost the first thing you do impulsively? God, help me. I'm the same way. When I hit the bottom, the first thing I scream out is, the Lord, help me. I should say that at the, at the top, Lord, thank you. <laughs> but usually when it's at the bottom. And it's not that he's closer in the valley. It's just that I'm aware. I'm finally desperate. Desperation is a good place to be. It really is. So Calvin says, David became victorious over fear and temptations um, in no other way than by casting himself on the protection of God. He just threw himself all in the protection of God. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So if there's, a, if there's an invitation of sorts this morning for believers, for believers, cast yourself totally on the love and the protection of God. And here's where it gets interesting, right? As I'm walking through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. And then he says, your rod and staff in the midst of my troubles comfort me. Now, Rod and staff generally are for discipline. Generally. So how do rod and staff, the things that lead to our discipline, um, bring comfort? Because these things always lead to our sanctification. Rod and staff discipline leads to sanctification. We should be comforted by the idea of becoming more sanctified. More like Jesus. Less sinful more like Christ, less dependent on ourselves, more dependent on him. And the valley is a moment where we will find ourselves, okay, I've got to not depend on myself. There's no way I can do this, and I need the Lord. And so um, they remind us that God is with us. God is with us. When he says, you are with me, the rod and staff remind us of his actual presence. And he says, they comfort me. And so um, the rod and staff are are key elements of a shepherd. Um, and so they provide the sheep um, the understanding that this guy is the shepherd. He's the one that's taking care of me. He's the one that's looking out for me and keeping me inside of safety. He's the one that's my warrior that stands up for me and protects me. And so here we see here that uh, Jesus Christ, our shepherd, he cares for us. And we have nothing to fear because he's with us. Absolutely nothing to fear. Now, um, as we finish verse 4, the writer David is shifting from David or from the Lord Jesus as our shepherd to now our host. You know, the, the one who hosts us and brings us in and takes care of us. So in verse 5, you see he's preparing tables and he's anointing heads. He's, he's hosting us now. And so in this shift, as he's doing all this, um, he's doing it, as it says, um, 
Let's read verse 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there's the shift now over to host. God is host. So the next one is you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So go to point F. Roman numeral two, God is host. I just put it as F. I know I'm supposed to start over as A, but I just wanted to make sure you see that there's eight. So that's why I made it as F. Sorry. All right. Your host never lacks in provision and completely satiates you. Um, So you're filled and you're satisfied. You're filled and you're satisfied. God just doesn't prepare a table. He prepares a feast. He doesn't just fill your cup. It's overflowing. He isn't just meeting your need. He's satisfying you and your cup is overflowing. He completely satisfies you. If you just wanted to take a little, a little pause here and just take one little step back, the question is, if that's the case, if the Lord is the one that completely satisfies me and overflows, why would I go somewhere else in the world to look for satisfaction, for, look for filling? Why would I go to worldly, sinful things to try to be satisfied when everything I need is provided to me from Jesus Christ. Truly, there's pleasures at his right hand forevermore, Psalm 1611. There's no other joy. There's no other provision. There's no other feeling that this world will ever provide better than Jesus Christ. And it's prophesied to us that he's going to do this in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water and wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the same picture that we have one day in heaven. And so David says that this host is preparing a table and providing everything that he needs, and his cup is overflowing, and he says it in front of my enemies. That's an interesting little phrase. I don't really consider myself to have tons of enemies. Maybe you don't either. Like, you know, we're not David though, you know. So what, what does this mean? I think that what he's wanting to make sure that we understand is um, to quiet those that might not think that your Lord cares. He does care. He cares deeply and he's providing for you. You never lack in provision and you're completely satiated. Now, it does beg the question then. Here's uh, an insight of Dale Ralph Davis. I think it's great. If Christ can sustain me and uphold me in the presence of my enemies, then is there any circumstance at all, if it's in the presence of my enemies, he'll do it, is there ever any circumstance in which Christ cannot or will not sustain his people in any other circumstance? It's a resounding no. There's not. If he's willing to do it there, then certainly he's willing to do it in any other place which means we can rest in that and hope in that and know there's no circumstance where Jesus Christ cannot and will not sustain his people. He never lacks in provision to you. He never lacks in provision. He completely satisfies you. We have to get perspective on what should be satisfying and filling us, right? Him and not sinful things. But God is host. He never lacks Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. So our host is giving us goodness and mercy. This goodness and mercy I'm going to surmise as rest. Goodness and mercy. You can go ahead and put up point G. What are we at? Seven. Um, Your host provides with you a place of abiding rest. Goodness and mercy. 
in the Hebrew, goodness is tov and mercy is chesed. This deep, unyielding, never-ending, coming after you love that you could never ever conceive of. It's so amazing. Hesed love. And so it's mercy. And so these are the attributes of God. That God is literally following you and pursuing you. As it says here, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Now, follow in our English is just too tame of a translation. It's just way too tame of a translation. Um, Think of it more like an all-out pursuit. This is uh, pursue, run after, chase, aim at, eagerly to secure. This is not just kind of a shrug your shoulders, follow. It's an all-out pursuit. So think of it as, you know, whenever you're 18 and you finally met the person you want to marry, you don't just kind of follow them to try to get them to date you. It's an all-out pursuit, you know. In a not creepy way, but much more spiritual way, (laughs) the Lord Jesus is in an all-out pursuit of your soul to show you goodness and mercy. Tov and hesed. Like this deep, deep goodness that only the Lord can provide. And this deep, deep chesed, the the never-ending, never-stopping, not ever able to be put out, uh, unyielding love, mercy for you. And when he does, he's offering us rest. They're pursuing you in this way. No matter whether you can see it or not, no matter whether you're aware of it or not, if you're a child of God, this goodness and mercy from your host is pursuing you at all moments and trying to give this to you. As Matthew chapter 11, when he talks about this rest that he offers to us, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, this is what it says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The interesting part is the coming is still because he's pursuing you. No one comes to Jesus unless he is drawing them, as it says in John 6. And so um, the Lord is pursuing us. He's following us and drawing us into goodness and mercy and offering us this amazing abiding rest. So God is pursuing us every day of our life. And so um, I want to make sure you see, and don't forget this, when it says that he's pursuing us here, where do we end up? Look where we end up in this little, this little journey of Psalm 23. We end up in, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, right? We end up in his house. He's pursuing us in his house in verse 6 in the same way that is pursuing us in the valley in verse 4. Some of you just need to hear that this morning. Like, in your tough times, in the valleys, Jesus Christ is still pursuing you. Some of you can testify. Like, I, yes, Fudd, that's happened in my life before. I can look back and say, absolutely, that's been going on. And so, I want you to see this last little one here. How long is it going to happen Put up number H, number eight. Your host's relationship with you will never end. Watch this. Surely mercy and goodness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord 
forever or for all time to come. That forever is literally for all time to come. All the days of my life. So he's going to pursue you forever. Notice where the host brings us. We started walking beside waters, green pastures and waters. We walked down some paths. We went down into a valley. He always has comforted us. He makes us a table and we end up in this final journey in his house. Isn't that life? The Lord saves us. We have some difficult times as believers. There's hills and valleys. And then at the end, we go to heaven in his own house. With him forever. Your host relationship will never end. At the end of life, when it's all over, we are literally going to dwell in his house forever. For all of eternity, his pursuit will continue. And his presence will continue with us, even in heaven. Now, if you look back over the journey, as I said, green pastures, still waters, the valley of the shadow of death, passing all of our enemies to end up in the house of Jesus, our shepherd. Was the journey worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely, it was worth it. And when you're in heaven, I'm not saying this because I'm the authority. Look it up for yourself. But when you're in heaven, you'll look back and you'll say even the valleys were worth it. Because they, draw, they drew you closer to the Lord. And Christ led you the entire way. How does Psalm 23 point us to Jesus? How does it point us to Jesus? In John chapter 10, Jesus says, starting in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So the only way Jesus is the good shepherd in Psalm 23 who lays down his life so that we can have our sin forgiven so that we can be with him forever. So the only way that you and I in our sin can know that we will be with the Lord forever as our shepherd and as our host for all of eternity is because the Lord God sent his son Jesus to lay down his life for our sins. And if we confess that we're sinful and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead to defeat Satan's sin and death, and he's resurrected and lives at the right hand of God forever, forevermore, so will we. And so that is the good news. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life so that we can live with him forever. He's reconciled us now, if we're in Christ, to the Father through his death on the cross, and all of our sins are forgiven. He has risen from the grave in power over sin and death, so that even though we will die once physically, we will live forever with him. And we will live because our Savior and our Shepherd has laid down his life and he picked it right back up again. And that's how we know his goodness for us is eternal. Because he lives forever. For all of eternity. Listen to this. This is the last thing I'm going to say. For all of eternity, you and I will feast at his table and will experience his pastures, his green pastures. We'll walk beside still waters in complete righteousness. At that moment, we will be in complete righteousness before the Lord our shepherd and he will get all the glory for it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your amazing, amazing text you've shown us here of how you're the good shepherd and that ultimately it's all for your glory and that we are the gracious beneficiary recipients of this amazing, (laughs) 
generosity, tov and hesed, goodness and mercy that you are overflowing into us where you offer us rest, spiritual rest forever. And so, Lord, we're grateful for that. Help us be grateful continually. I pray for my friends here, if they're walking through the valley right now, Lord, that they would um, respond in faith, that they would seek you for comfort through it, that you would be their only place they turn, and they would see how, just how close you are in the valley and recognize that you're actually always close. For anybody that's going through a difficult circumstance right now, Lord, make your presence known to them in a special way. We all need that. Lord, I pray that you would lead us all through green pastures and still waters and to paths of righteousness continually and that we would become more and more sanctified, more and more like Jesus and less and less relying on um, sinful indulgences or distractions. But instead, Lord, you would be our only hope, our shepherd and our host, our king, our savior. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.